Hello and welcome to Startup Dads. I'm Amrit Santhirasanan, CEO of a high-grade startup, father to a young daughter. Join me as I speak to ultra-successful parent founders, venture capitalists and investors to take a look at the world through their eyes and uncover the lives, drives and strategies of parents and business. We're here to show you that you can grow a thriving business and happy family at the same time. This week, I'm joined by Gerard Grech, the CEO of Tech Nation, one of the UK's biggest growth platforms for British tech companies and leaders. Gerard has had an epic journey across the UK, Europe and the States, working both for and with startups. He is also a devoted dad to two kids. In this week's show, you will learn the two biggest inhibitors of growth in startups, insights into different startup cultures from across the world, using your people teams to discover how your remote culture is evolving, and the founder economy and the entrepreneurial age that we're currently in. As always, it's great to hear from you all, so do leave me a comment or send a DM on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. Alternatively, reach me on LinkedIn at Amrit Santarasanan, and I promise to get back to you. All right, let's get into the episode. You've done a ton of things. I'm fascinated to talk about your journey because it sounds like you did startup first. There are lots of bits that weren't really startups, but kind of startup-y in a way because you went all over the place doing lots of things. And then now you're all in on helping them thrive. So if it's okay with you, I'll kick off with that question to talk about your time in your life when you became a startup dad and you can take us on your journey. Sure. So very much started when I was quite young, I guess, in my teenage years and started DJing at people's houses, either paid or for free. But that's really got me interested in the notion of doing your own thing and being paid for what you love, I guess, to some extent. So I remember sort of buying a secondhand record player from a couple of shops in back and, and sort of a couple of decks, I should say. Uh, and just, oh, that's where it all started. And obviously at university, it got a bit more serious to some extent. I was sort of playing out quite regularly and then set up a production company which organized quite big events and also we sold merchandise. And then when I left university, I went traveling for a year. And then after that, I joined a small music promotions company in Notting Hill. And then after that, about 18 months in, I went on to set up my own business. And from there, really learned what it's really like to run your own business, managing sales products, meeting clients and so forth. And so that really got me interested in how things worked. I learned a lot of lessons in perhaps in how to run a business and how not to run a business, but it just got me the bug. Yeah. Very, very, very good feeling. That's awesome. And so maybe I can ask you then, is the school of hard knocks versus what you can learn from accelerators and people who can help you? And you probably have a good kind of perspective on this, having run your own business. So do you have any thoughts on what you think they should learn themselves and what can be taught? Yeah, Technation, we run a number of growth programs at the scaling stage, you know, typically from about 10 employees to about 500 employees. We've now delivered 36 growth programs or different cohorts, either at different stage or by sector, such as net zero, artificial intelligence, cyber, and fintech and so forth, right? And in that time, I think in the seven years that we've been doing it, we've had the privilege of working with over a thousand companies, which have collectively raised over $30 billion, all in the UK. And I would say that I think the one thing that I would say you see consistently is how much people underestimate or founders and leaders underestimate the importance of physiology and how important it is to manage your own psychology as a leader. 
because everyone's looking to you or your co-founders if you are a team. What you say and how you behave is being looked at and monitored. And whether you like it or not coming into work, you have to be aware of that. It obviously needs a self-awareness and also how to think objectively the whole time. And that's the performance of leadership. That is what it takes to continue to perform despite the highs and lows. Because when the highs are high, it's very, very good. But when the lows are lows, you have to pick up and rally people and and power through a number of things. So the programs we run really help articulate that for founders and leaders and scaling leadership teams, just to be aware of what you may not be aware. So one of the things we say consistently in the programs is that the two things really that inhibit your growth as a leader or as a scaling team is either your blind spots or your ego. So that is something that people don't necessarily feel comfortable talking about quite quickly. It does take a while before people feel comfortable to talk about that. That's super powerful. It's super powerful. And you're absolutely right. I think about my own journey as a founder, but how much of the blockers are me, (laughs) right? I think startup founders seem to be big adherents of stoic philosophy. It comes up a lot. And huge amounts of this is about thinking about your own mind and what you can control what you can't control. That really resonated, actually. And it's not necessarily the obvious answer. You know, I think lots of people who hear about accelerators go, cool, they'll teach me how to get my legals in order. <laughs> Whereas I get your legals in order. Yeah. And we do that, right? And we do that very much so in how to manage your board, how to recruit your first chair. Mm. And when do you need a chair? When do you need a board? what to do with investors that are on your board. How do you manage those dynamics? So we go, we run through a lot of that. We sort of make the unconscious conscious, right, through the program. And we've had people be completely transformed the result of being on the program. It's typically 60 to 70 hours of engagement, masterclasses, workshop sessions. But it's well-balanced between practicalities and practical tips and how to manage your business as objectively as possible, but also you as a leader managing those tasks and those things because they go hand in hand. For sure. It's so true. It's so true. You can have all the toolkit in the world, but if you're not in the right place, you know, mentally and physically to use it, it's kind of useless, isn't it? Yeah. And, and the good news is that we have published a book on the back of these very intimate sessions that we continue to have with founders and scaling leadership teams. And it's called Upscale. I'm not plugging necessarily, but aware that that people really want to get access to this information because of their own company or whether they're sort of thinking about starting their own business. But really, the book is split into three areas, probably the most critical things that one needs to think about if you're running a high-growth business. One is people. Hmm. I mean, that's kind of yeah. sounds obvious, but one is people. Two is strategy. And then three is fundraising or capital access to capital. And those three are what make up the whole book. And then it's broken down into specific chapters written by dedicated entrepreneurs themselves. So it's written by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. That's great. Well, you've made at least one sale, I can tell you, (laughs) uh, from the show. So amazing. So uh, that's super cool. Thank you for your insights there. I suppose I want to go back to you because I'm fascinated. You know, hearing your early stage of your journey is really interesting to hear. But can you tell me, how do you go from kind of working at some of the world's biggest telcos, right, to running two of the UK's biggest technology accelerators? How does that happen? 
Good question. I, I think I've always been a bit of a startup champion within big companies. So I have always stayed close to the cold face of what it's like to be at the cold face of innovation. And innovation always comes, especially if you're running, you know, if you're working in big technology companies, it's going to come from the small startups that will push the envelope and push the status quo. So I, throughout my time in bigger companies or established corporates, I would say, I've always been the one sort of giving as much promotion and championing to these startups. And I think at one point I almost got fired because I completely bypassed the procurement process <laughs> in order to buy into the tools and processes that this company was offering. I think it was a music company that offered sort of music download services. And I was told off quite severely about that, but I was so keen and committed to back these people and back the innovators, back the people that are really making it all happen. Because, you know, as you know, the companies, there's quite a lot of inertia and people wanting to just exist to exist. And uh, the fun is at the cold place. <laughs> That's really cool. So maybe I can push on that door a little because one of the big challenges, and I see this as uh, HX, our business is, the, is an enterprise technology company, is the interface between startups and big companies who are often critical to the success, right? You are, I, I certainly remember for us signing our first really big enterprise contract was transformative for us. Mm, um, yeah. And so maybe I can hear your reflections on the other side and, you know, maybe our listeners who are thinking about setting up businesses or have businesses can hear about, you know, what it takes to kind of empathize with a large corporate and actually make things work. Because that's a hard skill. Yes, and I have given first-time contracts, big contracts, in fact, to very, very small companies who don't have a track record. Mm -hmm. And that's what that's what never really passed the procurement test in a big company. Yeah. It's like, why, why are we giving this yeah. big contract to this company that only has been in existence for a year? And that's always a hard conversation to have. But that's always kept me sane. I think consistently, I've got a handful of, of examples where you know, I gave big contracts to organizations because that's how I knew we could stay ahead and have the edge on information or whatever we needed at the time. Whether I think because I've been through multiple, I've been lucky enough to be, have had a front row seat and continue to have a front row, front row seat on the waves of innovation. So whether it was the mobile industry taking shape music going mobile, the mobile apps phenomena, and also doing first deal with Facebook back in 2006, wow. YouTube deal in 2007. They were very, very early on in how to make those kind of services available on mobile platforms. We were obviously operating in over 815 countries in Europe. And the amount of time spent on dealing with lawyers in order to get these contracts through when, you know, it was almost like dealing with two very different civilizations where you have, you know, the startup called Facebook operating in a certain way in 2006, only two years old. And you've got this legal counsel that's working for benefit of the corporate, just seeing the world in a completely different way. And so you have to, you know, for those, there's many people like that who are mediating and then championing companies like yourselves to get it through. And, and they are really, really important people in, the, in these big, large businesses. Yeah, it's so true. This is the biggest, most valuable uh, lesson we've learned is the power of finding those champions. Because actually, I think I can look back on every single enterprise big deal we've done and it wouldn't have succeeded without a champion. And you, sometimes you don't realize it that that is the case, but it's so critical. 
and to that point, it's hardly the fact that they want to necessarily, because you hear this phrase, you know, you want to make them look good in the company. But I don't see that necessarily. I think they're just genuine, passionate people who, who want to do the right thing for the organization and just back the latest innovation and back the pioneers that will make the change happen within their business that they're in. So, yeah. Very positive. It's super cool to hear your experiences and, you know, just the companies you mentioned, YouTube and Facebook, which I think uh, Facebook crossed the trillion dollar mark a few weeks ago. Can I ask you maybe just for some of your experience of what it was like working with them back then? You know, was there anything special that stuck out from the people that you were working with them that you're like, did you have that view or they're going to be big? Um, was it obvious back then or not? It's a good question. I was then working and living in Paris and I remember walking down the street and talking to their representative at the time. And he said, we see Facebook as like a platform, like mm. electricity was a hundred years ago. Yeah. And I just thought, mm, okay, okay. I think I know what you might be saying, but it's still early days, but it's sort of evasive, ubiquitous. Yeah. yeah. That's where they were coming from. And also what I really liked about their approach was they were standardizing a lot of things. And what I mean by that is when it came to the contract, they were like, here are the terms and conditions. They're, you know, here's an API to access them and off you go. You can sign them. And I was like, I don't think that's going to work very well or go down very well with our <laughs> counsel. Uh, you know, because <laughs> the lawyers just don't work that way. No, that's and amazing. I, you know, but I just really liked the approach. It was slightly... Yeah, it was very reassuring of, from their side and how they wanted to operate. But my God, did it, it did take a bit of time to just find a, a landing zone that was both uh, equitable for both them and the organization. <laughs> That's a super cool story. I talked about the interface between the corporate and the startup. You literally, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah, you, it yeah. sounds like there was literally an API. That's amazing. They didn't want to deal with any tailored contracts. They were like really speedily going through. Like they were very, very determined to sign X number of deals with X number of operators. What I liked about it at the time, they were probably a little bit naive, but nonetheless had the energy and the drive and, and the ambition. And that's what entrepreneurship is about. It's staying hungry and staying foolish about certain things. Yeah. As Steve Jobs used to say. Amazing. So again, you've set me up nicely with a segue because you said you were working in Paris at the time and I was researching you. I was fascinated by your itinerary, really quite the itinerary. I'm sure I've got this wrong here, but Paris, London, Paris, maybe Paris twice, New York, London, New York. So an amazing journey. And I suppose maybe my question for you is, how did you make that work mm. with family life? Mm. Yes. Well, I think... <laughs> well, it was sort of burning candles at both ends, I would say. My son was born, I think a year later we moved to Paris. And then when we were in Paris, my daughter was born there and then came back to London for six months when my daughter was born. And then literally three months after that, I was in, you know, we moved to New York. So it was, and then I, we came back and then I went back out to New York. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to anybody. Because, yeah, I think there were times when I certainly put the family first, but there are other times where I literally put my work first. And and then I only sort of, in this role, which when I came back, fully came back to the UK, I really, it was like founding, you know, it's like we were only sort of five people at the time or six people, and now we're over 120, I think. So 
in that time. It's been it's been a, certainly a journey in how to manage your time, prioritize your time between family and the business and the people within the business and how much time to give to yourself as well. So, so you've got yourself, the family, mm. your colleagues, and you go through phases and every phase has different challenges. Mm. I think what one has to learn and that I've had to learn is, is different coping mechanisms in each, in each phase and being aware of that as you go through these things. And now I certainly massively prioritize my time with the children, whether it's visiting schools or seeing them play at a concert. You know, I just literally just put that first no matter what. And sometimes it's hard. It's really hard. And it's hard to explain to people around you. But mm. ultimately, I think that's what counts. But it did take a while for me to recognize that in full. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, <laughs> the, the reasons we have this show is to shine a little bit of a light on the, the complexities, right? If you are in that mindset and in that mode that there is tension and it's not a straightforward a question to answer. You know, one thing that I'm really interested to ask you that relates to the time you spent in these different places, it's something I think about from time to time is about the different cultures that different working environments have. And, you know, you've seen America, Europe, UK, and, you know, lots has talked about Silicon Valley culture and, you know, Europe has developed its own startup culture. Do you have any perspectives on this based on your experience of kind of being at the coalface, quite frankly, in three different places? That's a really good question, actually. And I would say that when I was in New York, I was traveling to Silicon Valley, you know, Sunnyvale every, every week. And the, the culture was very monoculture, meaning it was, you talked shop the whole time. And that is all well and good for some people, but it's definitely not for me. I have a real interest in performing arts. I have a big interest in culture and all sorts of things. So I think the culture is evolving here in the UK a lot, in fact. I think in any startup, especially a very high growth company, it is intense. And people make an intentional decision about whether they want to work for a company like this or not. And I think very quickly they recognize that they're either all in or they're not. And I would say New York culture is very intense. It's even more intense than I would say Silicon Valley. Paris was slightly different. I think people had a very good work-life balance and obviously do. I mean, this is a while back, but this, but they do. And they would, I remember being told off a little bit for eating my sandwich at my desk. And this, you know, my counsel passed by and said, you're such a barbarian for eating your lunch, you know, the most important part of the day at your desk. You know, this, <laughs> this is something that would be just, sacrilege. you know, uh, a sacrilege. Exactly. So I sort of learned quite quickly that actually the discussions you have after lunch, either having a coffee or at the time in a cigarette, because that's how people kind of did things. It was very, very important culturally. And you picked up a lot of information, very, very important information about the business, about discussions that were being had, agreements that were being done and deals that were being done. And that was important. And again, sort of that I learned by doing and, and getting out of my own cultural zone, so to speak. And, and it just made such a difference. And so I think it's important that one is very aware of these things when they're in the zone, because when you're slightly a workaholic, you don't tend to perhaps think about these cultural traits and how one does business in Europe or even, you know, Southeast Asia is extremely different how, how it's done in the States. And, you know, Southeast Asia, it's very much through political networks. 
obviously that helps more than just business networks, whereas in the States, anything close to government is not really the case. So, so that's why actually, funny enough, Amrit, we, we recently launched as part of Tech Nation a new program called Thrive, which is really about helping people who are granted a Tech Nation visa to come to the country and actually do a learning program to learn about what it's like to settle in the UK, open an account, find accommodation, know how to do business, and just make sure that they, they are prepared to thrive. These are things that are very, very important, very important. That's really cool. It's a really cool program. As a startup founder who's, like every other stereotypical founder, desperate for talent, that's exactly what the country needs. A question that's, again, related to this is, historically, the fact that we haven't been in the world that we are in right now, they've been a lot more divided, a lot more separate. Whereas we've seen the pandemic obviously make the world work on the internet rather than in places and work become global. And you have a front row seat to this story as it unfolds, I suppose. So do you have a take on what this pandemic has done for, I suppose, startups in general, but obviously UK startups more generally and how we're competing on the world stage and how startups are configuring their teams? Yes, I think there will be companies that will be wanting to be fully in the office five days a week if, they, if, that's, if that's what they are, whether it's here or somewhere else. Or, and then you've got other companies that are fully committing to being fully remote. And then you've got the sort of bell curve, really, of where typically a lot of companies are sort of settling for the two or three days in the office. Now, for the companies that are fully remote, it's very clear that they are investing very heavily in people teams to ensure that the culture is built in a different way. And I've seen myself that they are much more intentional in making sure that they've got the people team in all sorts of meetings just to make sure that they're picking up intelligence about what the culture is like at meetings, what the culture is like in social environments online and how to kind of instigate water cooler conversations. It is evolving, and I don't think anyone has a silver bullet at the moment. I think, you know, we've just simply extended our own work from anywhere policy. Uh, we had it for a full year, and we've literally just extended it for another five months, which gives people the option to either come into the office or not, but we're not being dogmatic about it because we're all very empathetic to the fact that people are coming out of COVID and on their own journey in different ways. Mm. So I, I think it's a, you can see it as a challenge or you can see it as an opportunity because I've seen one company making a real big deal of the fact that they are very much being selective about the fact that they are going to be in the office for five days a week. Wow. And they're saying, look, I know this may not be your cup of tea, but we want to build a very, very serious culture in this way. And so that's very self-selective. So you can imagine that the people that do then decide to join this organization that will committed to five days a week, they're going to be very, very committed. But the pool of people that they're obviously targeting will get smaller. And that's a decision they've made. Now, whether they'll continue and sustain that, yes. who knows. But I think some people are being intentional. Some people are trying to work things out as they go through this. But I think that we all know that building a culture is not about building a cult. It's about building a way in how decisions get made through the values that you've chosen as an organization. Yeah, that's a very powerful summarizing of the power of building a culture. So, you know, talking about the future is something that makes me circle the topic around to the dad part of Startup Dads. So I listened to a really interesting interview with Sebastian Siemiatowski, who is the CEO of Klarna, 
the mega success in Sweden. And he was talking about in the early 2000s, 7% of university students wanted to start their own business. And now we're up to 70%. If you look at students, 70% of them at some point would like to start their own business. So, you know, my question for you is you've done a lot of different things. You've seen a lot of different career paths from both sides of the table you know what sort of career path can you see yourself outlining to your kids when the time comes or if the time's there already mm, i think we're going to enter a very very exciting decade of entrepreneurship it's going to be an explosion of creativity now that the tools are available the capital is increasingly available in various ways and i just call that the entrepreneurial age i think what i've come to realize as much as i want my children to do certain subjects, I think they are their own evil. <laughs> and I've kind of really, really sort of made sure that they do what they love. And my 12-year-old has already set up her Etsy shop and oh, that's is, awesome. that she sells stuff both online and offline and, and got her a credit card reader. And that was easily set up within three days. I was just absolutely amazed by how quickly the whole thing was set up. And she was going around to her grandma's and charging her... <laughs> <laughs> with her, that's amazing with her credit card you know uh taking money off her with a credit card for for some uh, bracelets she made and i just thought wow that's just so different to some extent how things were for perhaps some of us in our generation and i just think that more and more tools are available the way i've seen my children learn via youtube is phenomenal i think that platform is uh, the one of the largest platforms for learning and, and empowerment and I think there's just more choice. I think university or colleges of further education are really good because they offer you the time to sort of spend you know, studying or developing a skill. I don't think that will change necessarily. I think what will change is how people will apply themselves to life. And I think that's, that's just more choice. And I think the state and the system within which we live in has to recognize that a lot more. So the system has to make it easier for people who are running a business or starting a business to get a mortgage or, you know, because they don't, they won't necessarily have that recurring income. And so they're still wealth creators. So why shouldn't it be easy for those people to, 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 to get a mortgage yeah. uh, or even just opening an account? I, 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 you know, there are some really, the system has to catch up with where people want to be. And there's nothing more powerful than people being empowered to do what they want to do and creating the value that they want to see for themselves and be the chain that they want to see themselves. And I think that's just getting easier and easier. So I think you'll see a lot of the established industries really catching up with the freelance economy, with the founder economy, and these different types of economies that are really increasing. And, you know, if you look at the UK now, I mean, the UK is now the third country in the world to have reached 100 tech unicorns. And so there is so much more confidence in the system about what it's like to build a business. And also the fact that you can access capital that is being managed by ex-entrepreneurs mm. who know and have the empathy of what it's like to build a business yeah. rather than dealing with bankers no disrespect to bankers, but I, I, I would rather see an entrepreneur take money from someone who has been an entrepreneur themselves. And there's nothing more powerful than that connection. Yeah. I've seen more funds now available run by ex-entrepreneurs. So that's a really positive thing in the UK. Yeah, yeah. 
oh, I feel really energized and excited by your vision. Um, and I agree with you. I mean, your point about your daughter setting up an Etsy shop is really great and inspiring. And, you know, you think a little bit about how impossible that would have been, you know, what hurdle would they have been, not been able to even get going to do something like that and how technology has enabled them to do that. And, and how much tools she's using online to give her the confidence yeah. to be mm. what she thinks is a good idea. And the, the validation yeah. is a very different process and it must be so empowering. It must be, you know, she's, she's delighted. With it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's great. And, you know, I, I did a computer science degree and I um, studied it and it's one of these really cheesy things. They really did feel like total magic when you create a, a tool, a software program that, you know, yeah. that makes something like that. And now these tools are put in the hands of the people using it. It's cool. It's super cool to hear. Well, Jared, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you want to pass on to your kids? I think the fact that it's a journey and not a destination, I think you must have certainly heard that before, but I think how you overcome these challenges and how you overcome the fears that you may have about either starting a business or then going through the different phases of the scaling challenges that a typical business has. And just going back to first base and first principles about what is right to you and sticking to that. Although it may be hard at times, it is the right thing. I think knowing yourself first is probably one of the most useful things you can do. Not necessarily just to start a business, but just to have hopefully a good life, whether it's entrepreneurship or not. But doing as much as possible in your early years where you have fewer responsibilities, doing wacky stuff. I don't know, whatever it might be, I think it's a wonderful way of learning more about yourself uh, before you set foot into something where you have a huge commitment. Yeah, I totally agree with that. <laughs> the one thing I've learned is if you didn't know about yourself before, you certainly will <laughs> after you've set up your own business. <laughs> so we wrap up the show with our usual segment, Startup Shoutouts, where we shine a light on some people, founders or others in the startup ecosystem that we admire. Startup Shoutouts. Who's your startup shout out, Jared? It's a tough question, isn't it? Because I, I get picking to, your favourite kid. Well, it, I get to. <laughs> I am so lucky and so grateful to be able to sort of see so many companies and work closely with them. I actually I was in Manchester last week and I bumped into the Modern Milkman. I think that's Simon, who is amazing. So they're delivering milk in sustain, in a really sustainably, and there's obviously expanding his empire through other forms of, of, of foods. There is Servest, which is a climate intelligence platform, really in the net zero space. There's a lot more companies now coming up in the net zero space, so that's Iggy. Uh, love what Patch.Work are doing, so they're sort of quite an early stage company, but actually saying that you know a lot of people don't necessarily want to work from home, don't necessarily want to go into the office, but what's the middle ground? They're setting up all sorts of sites around the UK. What three words? Bulb, Acuris, Plan. I mean, there's so many. Honestly, I... I mean, the UK is just on a fantastic growth trajectory and, and the types of companies we're seeing are just amazing. So yeah, hopefully that's a few. And there you go. That's super cool. Well, you've definitely broken our record for a number <laughs> of startup shout outs, but I feel like it would have been wrong for you not to given your position. So, and as you say, I often think about this because I'm proud to be part of the UK startup ecosystem. Yeah. It's always really, really inspiring to me to look at the amazing work that other founders at home are doing. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many, 
so many Deliveroo, I mean, Zoopla, Kazoo, Hopin. It just goes on and on. I, I, you know, it's, we've got quite a lot of them on the website. If you want to know more about what's going on in the UK, if you happen to be a non UK listener, which I'm sure you are, uh, you have a lot of. So, yeah. Amazing. Well, look, Jared, that has been an absolutely amazing, uplifting episode, actually, to wrap up my day. Um, and I always joke about this, that, you know, it's my way of milking all the tips from lots of people who know what they're doing. And I've written down lots here. Um, how can we find out a little bit more about you and all the amazing work you're doing with Tech Nation? Sure. Uh, I am on Twitter at uh, Gerard Grek, or one word. There is also our website, technation.io. And also you can find me on LinkedIn if you want to connect and ask me questions or ask the team questions. We would be more than happy to help. So reach out. Amazing. And I'm going to go and buy Upscale in a minute. <laughs> yeah. so, we'll uh, send you a copy. Yeah. I'm not sure I've got any in the office. But, uh, yeah, it's available from any good bookstores. What am I doing? What a crappy founder I am. I should definitely be trying to get that for free, shouldn't I? That's fine. Amazing. Well, look, Jared, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. So if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at StartupDadsPod. 